Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Once again, Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads... And they came again to Jerusalem, and as, they, as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. The late R.C. Sproul And there's a reason why I quote him a lot. In fact, I would encourage you to read lots of his books. The late R.C. Sproul once wrote, The very word authority has within it the word author. An author is someone who creates and possesses a particular work. Insofar as God is the foundation of all authority, he exercises that foundation because he is the author and the owner of his creation. He is the foundation upon which all other authority stands and falls. Authority. If there is a word that is now relevant in our time, and that seems to be on the lips of a great many people around us, it is the word authority. In fact, there's a lot of talk about authority right now. Who has authority? Who doesn't have authority? Where does that authority begin? Where does someone's authority end? Where does one's authority come from? Is it from people? Is it from the law? Is it from the Constitution? Or is it from God? And then what's the limits of a person's authority? Are there limits to a person's authority? And how does one use their authority wisely? And then how does one exceed their authority? Right? And is there times that it's necessary for people to exceed the limits of their authority? And when do we know that someone's actually abusing their authority? I mean, because because it's natural, right? The natural man tends to be someone who abuses his authority and to usurp other people's authority. We are told that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts what? Absolutely. Right? And, And what do we do? when there are two differing authorities in our lives that conflict with one another. You don't think that happens? You you don't have kids. Sometimes mom and dad's authorities don't always line up. Whose authority is supreme? And whose authority is it that you must submit to when there is a conflict? And when and how are you ever allowed to resist someone's authority? When are you allowed to say no? When are you allowed to say you don't have that authority? These are but just a few of the questions, I think, that are on the minds of many people, right? 
These are just a few of the questions that we are facing right now. And I think as Christians, we should be diligent to ask these questions, not to be rash to answer them, but to really search them out. Right? I mean, even the scriptures, you know, give us a little bit of a challenge, right? I mean, Romans 13 says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. It's very clear, right? But then again, we see in Acts chapter 5, you know, the apostles say, we must obey God rather than man. So even in the Bible, we see that there's going to, experience, there's going to be times that we're going to experience conflicts within the authorities in our lives. And we, all of us at times, are going to have to make choices. And we're going to have to ask the question, who is it that you will actually follow? Whose authority will be supreme in your life? When push comes to shove, who's going to be your Lord? Will it be man or will it be God? Which, by the way, is the only two real sources of authority. There's actually only one, but I mean, practically speaking, there's only two. Right? It's either man or it's God. In fact, that's the question that Jesus is asking the religious leaders here in the text. That's the question that's being addressed here. Where does Jesus' authority to do what he's doing come from? Is it from man? Is it that his authority, like their authority? Or is his authority God-given? That's a good place for us to jump right back into the text. So turn with me to Mark chapter 11. By the way, I don't decide ahead of time the timing of when I get to these texts. I just get to them when I get to them. But it seems that God in his sovereignty seems to work these things out in a time that's necessary. So Mark chapter 11, and we're going to walk through verses 27 through 33. But before we do that, let me just remind you where we are in the context, where we are in the story. As we have talked about, we are at a major turning point in the gospel of Mark. Things are accelerating really, really fast now. The first 10 chapters, if you remember, were about three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. That's, I mean, they covered a lot of ground in 10 chapters, but the last seven chapters are going to be about a week. That's about as long as, as the time period that these last seven chapters are going to cover. So there's a lot happening in a short amount of time. And this week is Passion Week. This is the week that leads to the death and the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And as we have seen in the beginning of chapter 11, right, that the turning point of this story is kicked off by a very dramatic event, right, where Jesus is confirming for everyone to see that he is in fact the Messiah, that he is the King, Right? And he's going to come riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of specific property, I mean, uh, prophecy right? to the shouts and the praise and adoration of the citizens in that city. Jesus was declaring that he is the king. And the first stop, if you remember, that he makes as king that evening was the house of the Lord to the temple mount. And he was surveying and looking around at what was happening. And then the very next day, he curses the fig tree in an act of judgment against Israel and the religious leaders and the temple itself. And then the king comes into the temple and he goes in there and physically drives out the merchants who are selling animals as sacrifices and the money changers who are changing the currency from Roman currency to temple currency. And not only that, he's flipping over tables and he's preventing people from carrying their products and their, their freight through the temple because people were using the court of the Gentiles as a shortcut between the city and the Mount of Olives, right? And Jesus, the king, does all of this in an act of judgment against Israel and her hypocrisy and her lack of fruit 
because God had created her for a purpose. Because instead of inviting the world to come and worship God, they had hijacked the space that was created for that, and, and the, which is the, uh, the court of the Gentiles, and they turned it into a swap meet in essence, in essence. You know, a place of prayer and worship was turned into a marketplace for the Jews because the Jews were interested in only one group of people, themselves. And so Jesus physically and dramatically puts a stop to that. And what we see in the text here is the very next day. It says in verse 27, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now, let's be really clear what's happening here, okay? Because this is one of those texts you can kind of read past, and there's a lot of details packed into the verses, right? The first day that Jesus comes to Jerusalem, remember he rides in on a donkey? Jesus comes to the temple, he sees, you know, that the merchants have set up shop in the court of the Gentiles. And the very next day he comes, he drives them out. And then the next day, this day, Jesus now has returned and he's walking the temple grounds. Why? Probably to enforce what he had just done. Probably to ensure that the merchants didn't come back. Right? Because if you know anything from the Bible, is that the Jews were stiff-necked people. Right? And he came back to make sure they didn't come back. And so they, and that's where we find Jesus and his disciples in this story. And then it says, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. Now, what we need to realize here, again, this might seem like a generic description here, but, but, but the way this is worded actually signifies that this is not an ordinary group of people who have come up to talk to Jesus. The way this is worded, actually, if you were a Jewish person, you would know he's talking about the ruling elites of Jerusalem. This expression that Mark uses, chief priests, scribes, and elders, is a figure of speech that refers to the ruling class, the Sanhedrin, right? The people that came to see him were none other than the members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious leaders of Israel. Or in other words, these were the top dogs, right? The top dogs had now come to see him. Right? It had escalated to that point. In fact, many scholars actually believe that Caiaphas and Annas were, were there in person, and, and the chief of the temple guards was, was there as well. And so again, this is a really a, an escalation in the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. And, and, and this right here is an interesting development in the story, because if you remember, how does, how does Mark start off? Jesus is a nobody from nowhere that just emerges on the scene. He's, he's a guy from Galilee in a, in, a, in, in a town that no one even really remembers, right? And then he comes and he's healing and he's casting out demons, proclaiming the gospel. And then suddenly the local Pharisees, the people in the local synagogues, begin to notice him and begin to ask him questions. And word then finally gets back because his popularity and his influence continue to grow. And, and so those in Jerusalem hear about him. And suddenly they decide, you know what? This guy's probably a little bit more than just a small potatoes guy. Let's send a delegation out. Let's send some, some higher ups out. And they go out and talk and confront Jesus. And if you remember, they confront him about the Sabbath. And Jesus makes, them very, makes it very clear that he has the authority of the Sabbath because he owns the Sabbath. And the Pharisees that were there were really upset with him because he actually... Um, you know, healed a man on the Sabbath, and so they considered him a lawbreaker, and they had made a decision then, we probably need to kill this guy, right? But they didn't do so at the moment because he's very popular with the people. And so now, right, Jesus, who now everyone has heard of, is face-to-face 
not with just some middle managers. He is face-to-face with the head leaders, the head leaders of the temple and the head leaders of the Jewish religious life. These are the head leaders of Israel. The only people that they have to submit to is the Roman authorities. That is it, right? All of the Jewish people have to submit to their authority. And so this group of people came out to confront Jesus, and it was the leadership, right? The leadership itself that came to confront him. And it says in verse 28, and they said to him, or asked him, really is, is a better way to say it, but literally it says they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Now this right here is a place that we need to camp out for just a little bit because there's, again, a lot here, quite a bit to talk about. The first thing you need to notice is, is, is they say, by what authority do you do these things? What things? What are they, what are they talking about? Well, in context, what they're referring to is Jesus clearing out the temple. That's specifically what they're talking about. And him preventing people from actually transporting goods and services through the temple complex. That is what they're specifically talking about, right? Who gave you the authority to do that? And and these things in themselves, right, the reason why they're asking is because they had made the decision to allow it to happen. They're the ones that decided, right, for, for people to set up in the the court. They're the ones that that allowed people to transport across the temple grounds. Why? Because they're gaining from it financially. And so they're they're asking, where did you get this authority to put an end to this? Who told you you could do this? Now, the second thing you need to understand is that the questions they're asking are not a serious question in the sense that they want to know the answer. Okay? They're not looking for an answer from Jesus. Right? They didn't care about Jesus' authority and where he, he got it from. Right? In their minds, he didn't have the authority. In their minds, they were the ones that had the authority. They're the Sanhedrin. Nobody was higher than them. Right? They had the authority. They're the ones that were supposed to be in control. And Jesus was simply a nobody from nowhere. Right? And so who does this guy think he is? Right? Which really is the essence of the question. Right? You see, Jesus actions here, which would be the first fill in there, Jesus' actions here were a direct confrontation to their authority. What Jesus did here was a direct confrontation to their authority as the leaders in Israel. What Jesus did the day before was a direct and unambiguous challenge to their authority as the religious leaders of Israel. You see, to this point, Jesus was seen mainly as a, seen by the religious leaders as a nuisance and, and, and perhaps even a false teacher and maybe even a Sabbath breaker, right? Which, which were still serious issues. But now Jesus is calling them out, right? He's calling them into question. He is questioning their authority by his actions. He is openly confronting them and challenging them because they are the ones who actually you know, broke with tradition. The tradition was that they actually set up shop on the Mount of Olives and people bought their stuff there and came into the temple. They're the ones who broke with tradition and set things up on the temple grounds. They're the ones who hijacked the court of the Gentiles. They're the ones who didn't care about the worship of the Gentiles, which they were created for. They're the ones who set this up. But here Jesus rides into town, right? Think, think, think about it, all the pieces together. He rides into town as the king, as the Messiah. He goes into the temple and says, this isn't happening anymore. He puts a stop to the practice instituted by these men. Right? This was a clear confrontation to their authority. Jesus was saying, 
I am in authority, not you. And that is why these men feel compelled to come out and confront them, him themselves. That's why they're asking, where did you get this authority? Who, who told you you can do this? More succinctly is, is like, who do you think you are? That's really the point of what they're asking. We're the big shots. We're the ones in authority. I think it's worth mentioning that throughout history, the nature of Christ's authority tends to come in conflict with governmental leadership. It always does. Right? We see that in the Roman Empire. We saw it in the Soviet Union. We're seeing it right now in China as the Chinese are tearing down churches. They cannot stand another sovereign besides the state. And frankly, we're beginning to see that right now, even in our own country, in our own state. Christ's authority invariably will come into conflict with the authority of men. Why? Because man's authority right, causes men to desire more authority. That's the nature of that. Have you ever noticed that those people who are in control always want more control? That those who tend to have power, whether it's people or governments, tend to want to, more have, want, want, to, want to have more power? What's the solution? More power, more authority, more control, more regulation. Am I, am, I mean, we're seeing that in the world around us now. There are governmental agencies that were not even created by legislation like the EPA that have gigantic amounts of authority that you really can't even do anything about. And guess what? They keep getting more and more and more. The nature of mankind's authority is to grow. This is the next villain is to grow to that authority and to resist challenges to that authority. Let me say that again. The nature of mankind's authority is to grow that authority and to resist challenges to that authority. You, you don't believe me? Then go challenge any governmental agency person's authority. Go to the DMV and, and, and say, you don't have the authority to do that. So what happens. You'll find out that they will, exercise, they will flex on you right now. Especially truck drivers know all about that, right? The next villain is, is that in the greatest challenge to mankind's authority is God's authority. The greatest challenge to mankind's authority ultimately is God's authority, right? Because he is the one who's supreme. God is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who is unchallenged, right? His authority trumps all other authority. In fact, all other authority finds its foundation in him. All other authority emanates from him. It's derivative of him. And people don't like that. Let's be honest. People don't want God to be an authority. People don't want God to tell them what to do. People don't want God to make the law. That's why we have seen the systematic destruction of the family. God's institution that he created to build a stable society... Because as long as, as we build families, right, and as long as fathers and mothers are in families raising children, there's a greater possibility that values, God's values, are passed down from generation to generation. That's why, G, that's why God says in Deuteronomy to, to teach your children as you go. Right? When you sit down, when you walk, everywhere you go, right? That's the whole point of family, is to pass down God's values from generation to generation. And our culture doesn't like those values. A prominent Marxist organization who wields a lot of influence this very day, who is very popular 
and is supported by governments and even major corporations, has in their mission statement this phrase, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. Do you understand what they're saying? We exist to disrupt the God-given family structure, a, a family structure that's built on a father and a mother working together to raise their children. Right? A family structure that by all the statistics, by the way, produces healthier, happier, better adjusted people. Right? By all the statistics also produces better communities and also produces a more stable and civil society. They want to destroy that. And they also say that we foster a queer-affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of, look at, listen to this language, heteronormative thinking. Or in other words, we are here to tear down the God-given institution of marriage the way that you understand it. Because that's what heteronormative is. The institution on which the family is built, the permanent union, the indissolvable permanent union of one man and one woman in marriage together forever. You see, they want to be free from that. And the aim of this group is nothing more, I want you to hear me, the aim of this group is nothing more than the destruction of the country that has been built on the foundation of God's word and his values. I am under no illusions. The United States has never been perfect and has, has always had flawed fatally flawed human beings. But the reason why we have survived, the reason why the experiment lasted as long as it did is because we were a country that, found, that were founded on the values and the, and, and the principles that are found in the word of God. This group wants to destroy that. That's what they're really after. Anybody think that you can guess the name of this group? It's Black Lives Matter. That's their mission statement. You see, it's not about justice, and it never has been. It's about a Marxist agenda. The central agenda is to do away with God and his values in our country. And how do you get rid of God-given values? You stop them from being passed down from generation to generation. That's how you do it. Right? And how do you stop God's values from being passed down from generation to generation? You just simply destroy the family, which we have seen over the last several decades. Our culture does not want to submit to the authority of God. That's why marriage has been, been destroyed. That's why deviant lifestyles are celebrated and traditional lifestyles are being demonized in every media now. On television, in the movies, in music. Even the Disney Channel is on board with this. This is, this is why. There's also a war on gender. Guess who determines your gender? God does. But our culture, and now even the government says, no, you don't, God. You don't get to determine that. No, that is not for you to decide. I get to decide that. So God, you can't tell me what gender I am. And God, you cannot tell me who I sleep with and how many I sleep with. God, you cannot tell me to be responsible and to be productive and to be respectful and to be civil. People don't want for God to be in control. That is why so many who profess to be Christians will say that they don't believe that the word of God is inerrant. They can't make that leap. They'll say the word of God is spiritual, and there's some spiritual truth there, but it's not inerrant. And the reason why is because they don't want to believe what the Bible says about sexuality. They don't want to believe what the Bible says about marriage. They don't want to believe what the Bible says about the value of human life, even in the womb. They don't want to believe 
what the Bible says about the roles of men and women in the family. They don't want to believe what the Bible says about roles of men and women in the church. And they darn sure right now especially don't want to believe what the Bible says about forgiveness, especially when that means forgiving sins that are way, way, way in the past. Because in forgiveness today is power, by the way. I want you to understand that. And that right there is actually infecting the church as well. The, uh, ed- the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today in an article wrote, repentance is not enough. So that's his words, that forgiveness is not enough. That the, that the white churches and white people need to get on board with reparations because repentance and forgiveness is not enough. I don't understand where he could read this and not see that. We're all the same at the foot of the cross. We're all the same in the house of God. We're all the same family at the table of the Lord. But the thing is, is that's not popular today. It's not powerful today. What's powerful today is you oppress me and you hate me. Now give me something. That's powerful. And at some point, all the authorities of men will be confronted with this, right? Because, because people don't want to submit to the authority of God. Again, this is what we're seeing today. The government says the church must do this and must do that for public safety. That's what we're hearing. Right? But I want you to hear me. Mark my words. A time will be coming is when the government will say that the church leaders and the, and the pastors and the, the members of the church can't say this and can't preach that and can't talk about that because why? Because of public safety. You don't believe me? Exactly almost a year ago, we've seen that. Right? Almost a year ago, in June 2019, an article was written that recorded a resolution passed by the legislature of California. We talked about it, but let me remind you of this. It says, the California State Assembly passed a resolution on Monday calling on religious leaders and other moral influencers to affirm homosexuality and transgenderism. The resolution asks counselors, pastors, churches, educators, schools, legislators, and others to avoid supporting traditional and biblical views of sexuality, which the measure claims can cause suicide and depression. See, it is now about health. Okay? The text of this resolution includes philosophical statements about the nature of human sexuality, and a broad condemnation of so-called conversion therapy, which says that it has been rejected as ineffective, unethical, and harmful. Please notice the language. This is not accidental. This, the resolution doesn't say, hey, Christians, we don't agree with you. We don't like you. We think you're bigots. It says some of the things that you're teaching are harmful to other people. That's the precedent. That's the standard that's being set. That's the narrative. Some of the things you Christians believe and some of the things you teach are harmful to others. It, it, hear me. It's only a matter of time that our government takes the newfound authority to, to give unconstitutional orders in the name of public health. It's only a matter of time before they use that authority to tell pastors and churches that you can't teach that, you can't talk about that, you can't say that, you can't do that. We're going to have to shut you down because you just simply won't submit to our authority because you obviously don't care about the public health. That's the way in. You see, the enemy doesn't ever come at you dressed as the enemy and say, I'm here to destroy you. 
He comes in insidiously, silently, and begins to get your consent. The nature of Christ's authority is to be in conflict with man's authority because man cannot and does not want to submit to God's authority. That's what we see here. What Jesus did directly challenged their authority. And so they came to challenge him right back. Right? Who do you think you are is the essence of the question. Now, some commentators will, will say that, that, that they actually, that the intention of them showing up like this in force, right, that these men all showing up together was basically to, to try to embarrass Jesus and maybe even try to intimidate him. You know, when the muckety-mucks come in, you know, you know that scene in the movie when all the high-paid lawyers come in with all the black suits on and they start trying to browbeat everybody? Kind of like the same idea. But notice how Jesus responds. Verse 29, he, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you what, by what authority I do these things. Now, what you need to realize is that Jesus, right, his response, not only does it catch them off guard, right, because Jesus is actually right, you know, really very sharp, but he's also exercising authority over them right now. It's subtle, but it's there. And if you were Jewish, you would see it. Because he didn't just ask, he didn't not ask to answer their question. He didn't just say, I'm not going to answer your question, right? He actually answered with a counter question. He answered the question with a question. He was using a rabbinical teaching technique, right? Jesus in this moment suddenly established himself as the rabbi, as the teacher, and he is now acting in the master, right? He is the master and they are the pupils. He is now, in essence, posturing over them. To, to put it the way that, that people say it today, he's, he's flexing on them. Right? Moose knows what that means. Right? He says, no. I'm not going to answer your question. I'm going to ask you a question and you answer me. Right? And then I want you to notice in verse 30, he asked the question, but then he gets really forceful after that, and he repeats that, and he says, answer me. Very direct, very commanding. I want you to think about what's happening here. Jesus comes came, come as the king. He drives the merchants out, you know, which is a direct con confrontation with the Sanhedrin's authority. These men come, ba come back to push back on him and try to put Jesus back in his place, and they come, and he comes right back at them as the master, and he demands, no, you answer me. This should, I think, in a sense, almost remind you of the story of Job, when Job was asking for, for God to answer him, and God's like, no, wait a minute, you answer me. This is, this is a very tense confrontation now. And, and, and what we're going to see in a moment is these men are going to struggle with this because they're not ex they weren't expecting this challenge. They, they expected that, that he was going to that, that they were going to push back on him, and that he was going to fold like a cheap suit, and that he was just going to go away. But hear me. The king never backs down to the authority of men when he is challenged. Please understand that. The king will never back down to the authority of men when he's challenged. And by the way, neither should his bride, the church. So they try to put Jesus in his place. Jesus pushes back. And then he demands them to answer the question. And the question is, what was the baptism of John? I mean, excuse me. Was the baptism from John of John, was it from heaven or from man? Now, this requires a little bit of, of unpacking because... Because, number one, it's foundational for us to understand. But there's, there's some details here that you've got to fill in. 
When Jesus was saying, and he's talking about the baptism of John, he wasn't just talking about the actual act of baptism. That's not, you know, I mean, it's a symbol for something bigger. He's talking about John's entire ministry. John's entire ministry was a preaching ministry where he called people to repent of their sins and be baptized in preparation for the coming Messiah, right? So this, his entire ministry, this baptism, was, had a point to it, right? And, and that's what Jesus is referring to because Jesus was that coming Messiah. John himself had affirmed that publicly, that he was the Lamb of God. And Jesus then affirmed that as well <clears throat> when he rode into the city on the back of that donkey. And so when Jesus asked the question, he gives them an opportunity to answer their own question, in essence. Right? The same authority... Behind John's ministry is the same authority behind Christ's own work that he's doing. It's kind of like the, the underlying point. The second thing you need to notice is Jesus gives them a choice of where the ministry comes from. Was it, is it from, from man or is it from heaven? And what you need to realize when he says it's from heaven, he's not literally saying that it's from heaven generically, but rather he's referring to the one who actually resides in heaven. Because Jewish practice was, is you didn't actually say God's name, and you didn't refer to God as God. In fact, to, even today, when you read Jewish literature, you'll see the word God, and it'll go G space D. They will not actually, right? Because they reverence the name of God. And so a common practice was to say, instead of God, to say heaven. And so they wouldn't say, that gift is from God, that gift is from heaven. Right? That's why when you see in the Gospels, you see two different things that Jesus says, but it's the same thing. He says the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. It's the same thing. For the Jewish audience, they would refer to it as the kingdom of heaven. Right? So what Jesus is asking is the authority, is it from man, right? or by implication, is it from God himself? That's the question he's asking. Like, Did God give this authority or did man give this authority? And, and, and a question that they were just not ready to answer. They just weren't ready for this question because that's what they say. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven or from God, he would say, why did you not believe him? But <clears throat> shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people and they all held that John really was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we don't know. I want you to think about this. These men woke up in the morning and got dressed in their finest garb, in their most royal and regal, you know, apparel. And they were coming out with a swagger and they were going to challenge this guy from Galilee, right? And then in moments, Jesus turns the table on them. And now here they are, like a bunch of bumbling idiots trying to answer the question. Because they know that if they say John is obviously from God, then they're in trouble. They know that. Like there's, the conclusions just line themselves up. But they know he's from, from God because obviously John was from God. The thing that you need to remember is the story about John and his dad in Luke chapter 1. You see, his dad was a priest who worked in the temple at, at times. And before John was born, he was working in the temple offering incense, right? And during one of those times, the angel of the Lord appeared to him telling him that he was going to have a son. And his dad, Zechariah, was like, how is it even possible my wife is old and barren? We can't have kids. 
And the angel said to him, not only is this going to happen, but you're, you're not going to be able to talk until he's born because you didn't believe me, right? And from that moment, then he was mute. And everybody's like, what's happening? Okay, that by itself is going to create a stir and a controversy. Everybody's going to remember, right? And then when John was born, Zechariah finally was able to speak again. He tells everybody his name is John. And the thing that you need to understand is this is an incredible story in a, in a small community that not just in Jerusalem, but it happened in the temple amongst one of the priests, another small group. This is a story that everyone in that circle is going to know. Right? This is a story that everyone's going to be familiar with. The Sanhedrin themselves would have known this and been shocked by this and surprised this. And it wouldn't even surprise me that some of these people didn't, weren't even there when, 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 when John was born. Right? That's why when John, by the way, he was performing his ministry out in the Jordan, the leaders of, the, of Jerusalem and the Pharisees came, and what were they asking him? Are you the Messiah? Right? They came out to ask him that. Why? Because they knew he was from God. They knew it. They knew that he was anointed by God. He, they knew the supernatural circumstances around his birth. But John said, there's somebody that's greater coming after me, referring to Jesus. And so now these guys are stuck, right? Because they say if, if John, his, his ministry came from God, which the evidence all pointed to, then Jesus would have asked them, then why in the heck didn't you believe him? Right? Because I told you, because he told you I'm the one that was coming. He told you that I was the Messiah. And he would have, he would have said, you know, what, what, what John would have said about me comes from God, right? Which means whatever he would have said would, would have been true of me. So now you're subverting the will of God. You're at odds with God. You're making yourself to be an enemy of God. You hypocrites. So they couldn't say it, right? They, 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 politically speaking, they just couldn't do it. Don't you hate that's what happens to politicians all the time? Somebody holds them over a barrel and they can't actually answer the question? But then they couldn't say that he was from man either. Because, a number, because, because number one, the evidence didn't point that he was, he was from man. But most importantly, they were afraid of the people. Because the people had held, the, the, the culture had held that, Jesus, that John was really a prophet. You see, they were afraid of offending the people, the mob. And this right here is the weakness of human leadership and in human authority, which is the next fill-in. Because all human authority must appeal to the people at some level. I don't care what kind of a government it is. You, there's a group of people you have to appease. I don't care if you're a monarch. I don't care if you're a king. I don't care if you're a dictator. I don't care if you're the president of the United States or a senator or whatever. At some point, there's a group of people that you must appease to stay in power. Human authority must appeal to people. And that's what we're seeing today. Think about this. Politicians, 20 years ago, we're saying over and over again, all politicians on both sides of the aisle said that a marriage is between a man and a woman, right? We're talking about the most liberal of liberals were saying that then, 20 years ago, right? Wasn't even an issue. But now many of those same politicians are saying, right, and claiming that they're champions of LGBT rights. Why? Did they have a heart change? No. They're bound to the pressure of the people. Major corporations on the left and the right are making a point to declare their allegiance to the LGBT movement, especially during Pride Month. Why? It's not because they care about the cause. Because they didn't care before. 
It's because of the will of the people. They're trying to capitalize on where people are headed. Right? It's about the money. It's the same right now with companies endorsing Black Lives Matter and making these, these broad brush statements that we are here to fight racism. So you didn't care about that before? I thought we've been fighting this fight you know, since slavery and then through, through the civil rights movement. I thought this was an issue all the, so just now you guys have just decided that you're gonna join this. Are you kidding me? They don't care about this cause. Amazon does not care, no matter what they say, right? Walmart does not care. Bank of America does not care, right? They are trying to capitalize on this. They care about the money. And they know the culture is leaning this direction, and so that's what they're doing. They made their projections, and they figured out, hey, we're going to jump on the bandwagon now because there's money to be had. The weakness of authority of men is that they're subject to the fickle whims of people. And that's why the politicians will call for the arrest of a single person who's on a surfboard, you know, during a pandemic. But they don't even want to even talk about arresting people who are burning down a city as a group. That's why politicians and CEOs and even self-important, you know, prominent Christian leaders will jump in and call for heads to roll and for, for radical social change to happen when one black man is killed by a white cop but then have nothing to say about all the black-on-black -black crime that is rampant throughout the inner city where thousands and thousands and thousands of people are dying. Even little children are being killed. Right? And they certainly don't have anything to say when 400,000 little black lives are ended in murder in abortion clinics every year. You see, black lives only matter when it's politically expedient for them to when people are riled up about it, that's when it matters. And that's what we see here. These men were not about to say that John's a false teacher, right? right. They were not about to say it because they were not risking their necks. And, 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 and his authority, they weren't going to say that his authority came from God either because he knew that if he did that, right? He knew that if he said it was from God, he was in trouble with, with Christ. And then they also knew that if, if they said it was from man, Right? that they would not only lose credibility, but potentially they could suffer the wrath of the mob. We've seen how fickle the mob has been in our own time. And it's always been like that, by the way. And so they're, they're, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. The question that, that, that they thought would embarrass Jesus now has backfired on them in a big way, and they don't know what to do. And so they reveal their true character, just like politicians, right? They took the coward's way out, and they answered Jesus and said, um, we, we don't know. And, and you know what? It's really easy to read that and kind of overlook that, but I can't overemphasize the magnitude of, of, of the importance of that statement because these were the men who were supposed to be the shepherds of the nation of Israel. They had a huge responsibility. They were supposed to be the ones who preserved the moral integrity of the country. They were the ones who were supposed to protect the theology of 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 their country. They were supposed to be the ones to discern from true prophet and false prophet. They're the, <clears throat> they're the ones who are to protect the, nat the nation from false teachers. But they can't even answer the question about John the Baptist's legitimacy. They had just, in that moment, I want you to understand, in that moment, they had given up their right to lead in that moment. That's what happened. 
As Robert Stein wrote in his commentary, he says, If they were unable to conclude whether John the Baptist was a true or false prophet, they had forfeited their right to be religious leaders in the nation. You see, their hypocrisy and their corruption and their lack of character now was on full display for all to see because they were unwilling to submit to Christ's authority and wouldn't say that John the Baptist was from God, but they were also unwilling to go against popular opinion. And so they wouldn't affirm that he was from man. And unfortunately, sounds a lot alike the leadership of many churches across our country it seems like there are many people who are willing to throw out the absolute authority of God and his word you know, over the church and over their lives and over every situation, and they're unwilling to take a stand that might be unpopular, that might even get the crowd upset, that might even make, a cult, make the culture say, you guys are out of touch, you guys are so unloving. I mean, I mean, a guy can lose his job, actually. There was a pastor up north of a Presbyterian church that had just had the audacity to put on a sign that said that, you know, Men are men and women are women. God is still God, something like that. And enough public pressure came from outside of people outside the church that people inside the church fired him. More and more pastors and leaders want to be seen as relevant rather than biblical. More and more Christians want to be loved by culture rather than, than to be righteous before God. More and more people would rather have the approval of man than the approval of God. Peer pressure seems to be the irresistible force rather than the grace of God. But let me be clear here. I want to be very clear. And I'm not trying to be mean, but I, I, need, I think our congregation needs to hear this. I think people wider out need to hear this. Any preacher who refuses to openly and clearly declare that the word of God is infallible, inerrant, insufficient, has no business in ministry at all. Zero. If they can't make those statements, if they have to hem-haw around those statements, if they can't say that clearly, they don't belong in the pulpit. Right? The word of God is not about something that we are trying to like ease people into. We're to declare the truth. Any pastor or minister who leads... Who, who will not affirm that the Bible is the word of the living God, is disqualified from ministry and should be removed immediately. If they can't say that this is the word of the living God, not some of it, but it's all the word of the living God, they need to be removed. Any minister of God who will not submit to the authority of God, right, but would rather submit to the authority of men, is bereft of leadership and should find something else to do. Because this is not a vocation for weak men. Any pastor who refuses to stand up to the crowd and stand up against popular opinion and even maybe stand up to some of the members of his own congregation and maybe even some of the members of his own family, if he's unwilling to do that in order to stand firm on the word of God, again, he's in danger of the wrath of God. The Bible makes it clear that, that anyone who stands in the pulpit declaring the word of God is doubly accountable. Right? Woe to them. The leaders of the church must know for a fact who, who they serve and not for a second can they compromise on that. Otherwise, we give up the right to lead. And that's what we see here. Right? They just won't answer the question. And Jesus said to them, fine. <laughs> Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, I'll, again, we're, as we wrap up, I don't want you to miss what happens here. Because again, there's so much subtlety that's happening here. Jesus didn't say, I'm not going to answer your question. He says, I'm not going to tell you where my authority comes from. And he words it this way, right? By stating it this way, what Jesus is saying is, I have authority. I just don't have to tell you where it's from. 
That's the way he's stating it. I don't have to tell you where my authority is from, but I do have authority. Once again, Jesus is, is flexing his authority in front of them. Because not only is Jesus saying, I have authority, he's saying, I don't have to answer to you. That's what he's saying. Because you don't have authority over me. Let's be honest. Where Jesus' authority comes from is obvious, right? It's, it's obvious. People, he healed people. He brought people back to life. Cast out demons. He forgave sins. Even some of the scribes were like, wait a minute. You can't do that, right? He, he healed people. Not to mention, you know, they knew John and they knew about his ministry and the supernatural origins of that. But the thing that you need to realize is even the Sanhedrin, even the Sanhedrin already knew that he was from God. You know how we know that? John chapter 3. John chapter 3 tells us that they knew. See, John chapter 3 says, beginning in verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He was a member of the Pharisees. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, listen to this, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from where? From God. Remember the Sanhedrin says, we know it. And then he says, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. They already knew the answer. They just won't say it. Why? Well, it's the same reason why people who fully know that God exists will deny his existence is because of the hardness of their hearts. That's why. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. If there's a verse, a set of verses that you should memorize, it's verses 118 through 19 of Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. It's the same thing here. All the evidence points to the same direction. Jesus has authority, and it's from God, and it's apparent. And all the intellectual information a person needs to come to the right conclusions in front of them, but they won't acknowledge the truth because they are suppressing the truth and their unrighteousness. They don't want to bow to the authority of Christ. Why? Because their hearts are still hard like unbelievers. They're unbelievers. That's the root the reason why they reject Christ is not because the evidence isn't there. It's because they are still dead in their sin and their trespasses and their hearts are hardened rock. Which takes us right back then to the, par the parable of the sower where Jesus taught, if you remember, right after he warned the Pharisees of their hardness of heart and he was telling them, you're on the borderline of blaspheming the Holy Spirit and condemning yourself forever. Right? He said, he told us the parable of the sower. Right? And if you remember what he said to his disciples in the middle of that, he said, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but to those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, not perceive. And they may hear and not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. See, these men's hearts are hard, and nothing in the world will change their hearts. Not more information, not more evidence, not even Jesus answering their question. Their hearts were hardened to the truth like all unbelievers. And that's why we always affirm that salvation is 100% the work of God because only he can change hearts. Only he can. And I think this is important for us to remember, right? As we share Christ with the world, we need to passionately share the gospel without question. We need to give people the answers to their questions to the best of our ability and give them the hope that's within us. 
We need to be patient. We need to be loving. We need to be gracious. We need to be kind and long-suffering. And, and yes, we need to love people with our actions and our attitudes and keep loving them. But let us never forget that salvation is the work of God and we are wholly dependent upon him to change hearts and bring people into the kingdom. And that's what we see here. Their refusal to submit to Christ's authority is, is so because their hearts are hardened to him. And the reason why anyone refuses to submit to Christ's authority, the reason why governments are going to try to usurp his authority is because of the hardness of their hearts. Now with that... We stand at a very dramatic point in the story because it's not this part isn't even over yet right there's a lot of tension here because jesus he successfully challenges he he rebukes their challenge to their you know to his authority right and and, and but he doesn't leave it there because what we're going to see in the next week in the next part of the text is he's actually going to get even more in their face he's going to be very pointed and he's going to tell tell a parable that really relates to them and it's just going to make them want to kill him even more but in that, there's an important message of hope that we're going to talk about next week. But, but given then what we have walked through in this text so far, how do we take this truth then apply it to our lives? Because there's a lot here. And believe me, I could have probably done like three or four more weeks on this particular text. right? But there's, there's two applications I want to suggest to you that I think we all as Christians need to make. There's a lot of applications, but there's two I just want to appeal to your hearts with. If you're in Christ... Number one, if you're in Christ, you need to settle once and for all who it is your supreme authority. You just need to make that decision. As, uh, as Joshua said, you know, decide. Right? But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Right? We, you as Christians need to make it clear. You need to count the cost and you need to decide who it is gonna, you're going to follow. Is it going to be man or is it going to be God? Right? And the reason why I say this is because the time is coming that you're going to be forced to choose, right? Maybe in small ways, maybe in very big ways, but you're going to be asked to choose because that's the history of Christianity. The authority of God comes in conflict with the authority of man, right? And those who claim to be Christians will ultimately have to choose. It's like the expression that we all use unconsciously, Jesus is Lord, that's not just something that, that God just said, hey, that sounds good. There's a purpose for that phrase. Paul says, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you ever wondered why you must confess vocally, publicly that Jesus is Lord? Well, the reason is this. The early church grew up in a Roman Empire and everyone is expected, everyone is expected to worship Caesar. Everyone was. It was unquestioning. You had to do this. And part of worship was the Latin expression, curios Caesar, which literally means Caesar is Lord. That was the expression of the day. People were expected to declare their allegiance to Rome and to Caesar. They were expected to declare with their mouth publicly for all to hear that Caesar is their undisputed Lord, that he is their final authority. But Christians couldn't do that, right? When they were asked to prove that they were loyalty to Caesar, they would say, Curios Christus, or in other words, Christ is Lord. They declared, Jesus is the Lord. And many of these Christians suffered greatly and were tortured, and some of them were killed because they refused to submit to the authority of the state rather than the authority of God. 
Many Christians suffered and died this way. And, and many who professed to be Christians were also then proven to be false converts to the faith because they turned their back. When the pressure was on, they turned their back on Christ in order to obey Caesar. We need to really take stock in that. Brothers and sisters, history will repeat itself and a time is coming when you will have to make this decision and you're going to be amazed. You are going to be amazed at how many people will willingly jump ship and jump on the authority of man rather than God and say, come on, it's not that big a deal. It's not a big deal at all. Just, you know what? You guys are just making such a big deal out of nothing. Right? I mean, it's amazing already what we've seen in the church today. Right? But it will blow you away how many people personally you know, people that you know, that you see in their lives, and you go, oh, they're, they're strong. You're going to be amazed at how many people will make that decision to walk away and say that the state is Lord rather than Christ. And so my exhortation to you is to settle in your hearts and choose this day who is your king, who it is your sovereign. The second application I want to make is this. A lot of people have fallen, who fall away or who will fall away is because they believe the modern lie that you can choose God, Jesus as your Savior but not accept Him as your Lord. Right? Like that, is, that is a dominant theme within Christianity today. That you can invite Jesus into your heart right? and you can pray some prayer but never actually make Him the Lord of your life. That He's your Savior Right? But not your Lord. Jesus didn't hear me. The Bible has no superstitious thought like that at all in it. Okay? We are called over and over again to make Christ our Lord. Right? To declare Jesus is Lord. And I want to be clear with you. If Jesus isn't your Lord, he's not your Savior. I don't mean to hurt people's feelings, but the thing is, is we're at a time in our history, in a time in the world, people need to hear the gospel. And, the, the, and part of the gospel is understanding that, that Christ must be the Lord of your life, right? Otherwise, he's not your savior. Jesus didn't come to be your best friend. It's a benefit, but that's not the reason why he came, right? He came for your life. He came for all your life. That's why he says to us in Mark that if anyone's going to follow me, what, what does he say? Let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. He didn't say, hey, you're saved now, sit there, I'll do the rest. He says, come after me. And so my second exhortation is that you settle in your heart and make sure that Jesus is the Lord of your life. That you are willing to follow him wherever he leads. Even if that's into difficult places. Even if that's into dark territory where it's scary. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death kind of stuff even into conflict with the authority of other men. We as a church and as individuals have to decide who is the king and who is our Lord. Not just pay lip service to it, but actually live it. Now praise the Lord. None of us do any of that in our own strength. We do that by God's saving, sovereign, and sanctifying power through the Holy Spirit. But that's the application we make with this. And I say all this, and, and the way this all buttons up together now with everything that we see around us, I want you to know, it is not my, it's never my intention, and it's never my desire to be a person who makes waves, right? 
one of the flaws I have in my life, you know what I is? I want people to like me, right? But as a minister of the gospel, we're at a place that that's, that's not even relevant in my life anymore. Right? And it shouldn't be any resist Christians either. The world is dying around us, and we're seeing the fruits of the poison that's happening around us. But we have the greatest possible opportunity now to be the light because the darkness is so great. We have the greatest possible opportunity now to go out into the world and storm the gates of hell and share the hope of Jesus Christ, the only hope there is, and bring others into the kingdom. Because Christ, he will return. Could be tomorrow, could be a thousand years from now. We don't know. But we're to labor as if it can happen now. But we are also to labor with, with the endurance thinking that it could happen a thousand years from now. We need to be caught doing the work of God. So let us, as a church, go out into the world and share the hope of Christ with all we come in contact with. That's my final exhortation to you. Gosh, I hope you guys know how much I love you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth in your word. And I just pray, Lord God, that you would strengthen my hands for the task that's ahead, that you would strengthen my heart, that I would not be afraid, that I would not be found to be ashamed of the gospel, that I would stand to my dying breath that Jesus is Lord, and that I would be willing to, to endure whatever difficulty that comes from following you, Lord. Your word says that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, you have overcome the world. My hope is not in a pain-free, problem-free life here and now, though I do like comfort. My hope is not to be able to go fishing every, every week like I'd like to. My hope isn't even for everything in America to be made right again. Because only you're going to determine that. You are sovereign and not me. My hope rests in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And as the song says, my, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. You are the solid rock on which we build our lives. And as Peter said, we have nowhere to go. You're the one who has, has, has the words of eternal life. Where do we go? So here we are, Lord, at your feet, beckoning, Lord, that you would just continue to strengthen us and confirm for us that we belong to you as your children. And I pray right now that if, if a person has not made a profession of faith in you and has been transformed by your spirit, that you would do that today and you would confirm for them, Lord, that they belong to you and that they would repent and believe the gospel. And that, Father, you'd give us all the courage to be in the people you're calling us to be, to go out into this world and boldly proclaim the truth of Christ, even if it costs us dearly. For you're worth it because you are our treasure. We give you all the praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.